2: Hello, and welcome back to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's mental health podcast. I'm Rachel, Metro's Lifestyle Editor, and today I'll be joined by Dr. Marielle Bouquet, a world-renowned intergenerational trauma expert and the author of the book, Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. But before that, I've been hearing from all of you. As always, you've been getting in touch to let me know what you've been doing to support your mental health this week.
0: best thing that I do for my mental health is gardening. It's um, something that I got into very much in lockdown. There's something quite therapeutic about being outside in the fresh air, getting your hands dirty. It's also quite creative as well, thinking where you're going to plant stuff. So um, yeah, whenever I'm feeling stressed, I like to get out in the garden.
2: Personally, I've had a pretty great week. I've just come back from holiday. I was at a friend's wedding in France. The highlight for me was kayaking down the Dordogne. Uh, It's beautiful if you ever get a chance to go. And There are some real peaceful parts where you can just listen to the sounds of nature, go slow and get a real boost for your well-being. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to take things right back to basics to start with some people may have clicked on this episode because they're carrying intergenerational trauma themselves, but some of our listeners might be not quite sure what that really means. How do you
1: define it? Yeah, I think this is a wonderful starting point uh, because it's, it's, Important for us to all be on the same point of recognition of what intergenerational trauma is. And what it is, is the only type of trauma that's actually handed down the family line. So handed down one's lineage through communities, through generations. And it actually happens at um, an intersecting point of our biology and our psychology. And I can explain that further. Our biology, when it comes to intergenerational trauma, Uh, holds a a lot of genetic encoding and uh, nervous system encoding that reflects whether trauma or chronic stress has been reflected in our family line. And that usually then gets translated forward and it appears in the genetic coding upon conception um, and so whenever we're in, in utero, like meaning that we're already babies that are forming in the womb, we are already. Pre-programmed with a genetic encoding uh, that in essence makes us emotionally vulnerable and perhaps even more than maybe someone who doesn't have that encoding. Then fast forward to our psychology, meaning everything else that happens in life, we can actually have a, a home where there's enough emotional stability, nurturance, and a foundation that can actually make it so that those emotional vulnerabilities are taken care of. But there are times when we actually do not, and especially if we're we're coming from a family line where stress and trauma is the norm. That typically means that there is a lot of chaos, not enough nurturance, that there's um, the emotional foundation is in essence shaky. And so attachment wounds start to surface. There's other things that surface as a result of things that happen out there in the general public in life, like maybe uh, a child then enters the school system, experiences bullying, maybe they have a bad breakup when they're an emerging adult and they're in a toxic relationship and here comes a pandemic, right? And so like there's all these things that then operate as triggers to the already emotional vulnerability that existed And so that's when in essence, I tend to say the cycle of trauma continues when we start seeing the burgeoning of trauma symptoms in now the next generation, because the emotional vulnerability was there and encoded. And because from a psychological standpoint, other things happen and transpired to not nurture that emotional vulnerability enough, but instead trigger it.
2: So why did you personally choose to specialize in this area of psychology?
1: Yeah, quite the area to study, right? Or quite the area to focus. (laughs) Um, There were many, many reasons. I mean, I think there were some personal reasons that I later discovered once I actually got into the work. But there were some points of interest that came from actually hitting a lot of roadblocks in my work because uh, I used to work at uh, Columbia University Medical Center, which is where I also received some of my training. And in In my doctoral journey, I was still actually in my training and hearing a lot of, in the clinical team meetings, a lot of the um, presentation of our patients' stories, and we present them so that we can help each other as clinicians to really sort through the stories and identify ways to help patients manage through their emotional woes. And time and again, for years, I mean, like I was in these team meetings for years, sometimes as an observer, because as a trainee, you observe a lot more than you contribute. And there were so many stories that had an intergenerational angle. And I kept saying, like, no one is calling this out. No one is saying, well, her mother was also someone who suffered from domestic abuse. Her grandmother also suffered from domestic violence and we were just kind of saying what was happening and saying what the history was telling us, but we weren't necessarily exploring what this actually was. This was an actual phenomenon that was right at the center of our clinical team meetings and no one was really identifying what it was. And so that was like an, in essence, a place of frustration for me as a clinician that drove me into wanting to explore this further. And I also read a couple of texts around that time that were also very informative to me that were critical in my own analysis of this work, including, of course, um, the body keeps a score, which makes a note of intergenerational trauma, the same with my grandmother's hands, Res memenicm's book that identifies intergenerational elements of how racial trauma is you know internalized, and the same for it didn't start with you by Mark Roland. there were so many texts that i w- I kept coming across, and I was like, well, let's dive into this further and let's give it a, a concrete you know, analysis so that we can know what's happening. But of course, as a clinician, as many of us clinicians do, I self-analyze and I analyze my own world and my my origins. And I was able to see some of the wounding that my parents experienced. I was able to collect histories about my grandmother and some of what she suffered. And I was able to see that there were points of wounding in my own family line that also needed to be addressed. And I, I, couldn't think of a better person to do that than myself. So of course, I, I took on that role of cycle breaker in in my own personal life, also. So you learned a lot
2: about yourself while you were researching for others.
1: I did, and I do, and I continue to. I, I think of myself as a lifelong learner. Um, even just you know, prior to hopping onto this interview, I was actually doing a training that was incredible around attachment wounds and. I continue to learn, I continue to expand my field of knowledge, and that offers me an opportunity to not only understand myself better, but to be frank, it also offers me an opportunity to soften uh, how I feel about other people in my family that uh, perhaps need me to show up with a bit more compassion as well.
2: So what are the, some of the most common events that can lead to intergenerational trauma? You mentioned things like domestic violence or racial trauma. What else might be a factor?
1: The interesting thing about intergenerational trauma is that, in trauma itself, is that can have events that happen in our lives that can either be like ginormous events that can really dysregulate us, or they can be smaller events. And either can actually have a traumatic impact. So we call large events that tend to threaten our sense of safety, big T trauma events, meaning that um, we felt like our psychological safety or our being or our personhood was being threatened. And this can be an event like being, um, you know, held at gunpoint or um, having uh, some sort of, other violence imposed upon you. It can be like having a really tumultuous divorce. It can be um, having the experience that can be like more chronic, like being a person that is marginalized and suffering oppression in a a lifelong way. And so a lot of these things that tend to threaten our sense of safety are considered big T traumas or um, more of the larger traumas that or traumatic events that tend to produce trauma symptoms. We also have what we call small T traumas or little T traumas. And those don't threaten our sense of safety, but can actually dishevel us in in certain ways. And if they're longstanding, or if they, you know, just hit a very tender part of us, they can also have a longstanding impact that can then turn generational. And those can be like the loss of a job, right? There isn't a threat to your personhood. You're you're not physically in danger, but it is an event that can produce trauma. There's also, um, you know, being in a toxic relationship where your personhood wasn't threatened, but perhaps you had uh, very severe emotional injuries as a result, you know? So we have like all of these ways in which we can be injured emotionally by either acute, large, big events, a pandemic, oppression, like all of those things, or it can be, you know, uh, some of those, events that don't necessarily like make it so that we feel we may not be alive, but still have enough of an impact to, should we not reconcile the emotional process that goes along with it? It can produce trauma. It can produce some of those trauma symptoms that are in essence, the prototype of trauma that can then disconnect us from ourselves and from others and can make it so that we then suffer wounds that can last for a very long time.
2: I think that's what you do so brilliantly in your work is not belittle or diminish any kind of trauma if it feels traumatic to you, then it is traumatic. I really like that An analogy of you can drown in a sea, you can drown in a puddle, you're still drowning, so it doesn't it kind of almost doesn't matter how big or small it is if it if it still impacts you. With that in mind, what would you say some of the signs are that your mental health is being impacted by trauma, particularly intergenerational trauma? What kind of moments might someone realize that it's playing out in their life?
1: You know, there are so many. There, there are an immense amount. but some of the ones that um, are most notable, at least initially, is usually a change in temperament. Like people, you know, as soon as, it, it, especially like if a traumatic event just happened and we're talking about just trauma not intergenerational people tend to start experiencing themselves as a bit more irritable or more sad than usual right and and all of those things tend to to start becoming like more of the norm when it comes to intergenerational trauma typically people tend to have these kinds of symptoms happen for almost the entirety of their lives So, they can be a little bit hard to parse out because if a person has been in a trauma state for an extended period of time and it started off in childhood, it could very easily look like a person's personality, a reflection of the trauma that they're experiencing and have inherited. And so, some of the most notable ways that we can then see those personality characteristics that are very embedded in trauma are by seeing people that are in essence, what we call now people pleasers, right? That they self-suppress in the service of others because they've learned that trauma response. They learn to really kind of almost make themselves invisible or make themselves um, cater to the needs of others at the expense of catering catering to the needs of themselves. Uh, We tend to see um, people who for the entirety of their lives have had a response to even mild stressors with, Uh, intense anger and um, uh, sometimes even like um, violent anger, right? Like we have to note the fact that that can happen, right? Like people can simply yell or people can yell and do more things. There's also been, you know, a, a lot of the experience of codependency or really emotionally succumb to someone else's life and and having a dependency upon their emotions and, and vice versa, there's a, an intergenerational tie to a lot of codependent behaviors. When codependency is what we learned growing up or codependency is in essence what has been the general norm down our family line that tends to be really what is reflected now in our lives and the cycle of trauma continues by way of those codependent trauma response, trauma reflective behaviors. And so like, it, it, there's so many, right? Like, the, like you know, it, it, in part, like part of my, my rationale for writing Break the Cycle was because I kept coming across, I've been doing interviews um, around intergenerational trauma for years now. And every time that I would hop off an interview, I thought, man, I could have said so much more, but we only have so much time. And there are so many ways in which a person sometimes will reflect to me, oh, well, this has been happening to me for basically the entirety of my life. And when we start mapping back the origins, we start realizing, oh yeah, my mother also had a very similar way of orienting around stress or orienting around relationships. And so we start seeing the general, you know, like through line. So sometimes it's not... The norm of what we tend to identify as trauma behaviors, but they can be um, responses to stress and trauma or coping mechanisms that haven't necessarily worked in the favor of the family but have been present for a very long standing time.
2: So, how do you even go about breaking that cycle if you are that person who recognizes your own behavior is possibly influenced by your mother's behavior, your grandmother's behavior, something that's been in the norm for your family for such a long time? How do you? Even become the person to kind of start new?
1: You know, cycle breakers tend to want to disrupt the ways that their families have normalized around trauma because of many reasons. Sometimes those reasons are because they feel as though they simply cannot function anymore in the chaos. Sometimes it's because they don't want to feel wounded anymore and they also don't want other individuals in their family to feel wounded whether that's them not wanting their parents or grandparents to feel wounded or if it's their children if it's their siblings right like it's people that are proximal to them sometimes it's people wanting to extend that healing forward into other people in their lives community members and anyone who who they you know they have communal proximity to And so that tends to be the driving force and usually the motivation. A lot of cycle breakers also work through breaking cycles out of sheer intuition because really until break the cycle, we haven't had really a a roadmap that that helps cycle breakers to really formalize that transition from a place of pain and wounding and generational trauma into liberation and abundance, right? And so there the ways that people have traditionally like worked through these things has been by being an active resistance of what's there. If they realize that the ways in which parents in their family line have usually made it so that children will behave differently um, or behave better, let's say, in the family is by actively manipulating children, sometimes by being abusive to children, Right typically physically, you know, to incite fear or terror in order to change behavior, um, and they realize that is not the way that I I want to choose to parent for, that's not the way that I want to orient myself around relationships with my children or with anybody else by manipulating or inciting terror, um, then what they do is that they typically do the opposite, right? Because the roadmap hasn't been there yet. These are things that I help also, you know, cycle breakers too, to orient themselves around and try and and figure out ways that would naturally fit into their lives that they can actually do. But in addition to that, perhaps most importantly even to that, the helping individuals that are breaking cycles to learn how to restructure their own bodies and their body's response to trauma in order to actually produce more longstanding and sustainable effects of breaking these cycles. And the reason being is because intergenerational trauma is the type of wound that wounds us at a very deep level. And and this is reflected in previous texts, Beyond Mind, the wounding of the soul, right? And the reason why we call it that is because people, people's minds are impacted, meaning that their thoughts become very circumscribed around pain and stress their emotions become in essence, very frozen. People become frozen in shame and guilt and, you know, anxious distress for long periods of time or for uh, a lifetime. They, um, also experience a lot of body retention of those trauma symptoms, right? People experience, uh, their nervous systems are always like very hyperactive and, and, um, uh, very tender. Right. And so like, there's all of that with. A lot of trauma or with longstanding trauma or with chronic stress, people can actually even be susceptible to physical disease. And then there's uh, the spirit element. So mind, body, spirit, right? Which is in essence, the soul. And the spirit element is really, you know, how connected or disconnected do we feel from ourselves or others? Trauma sufferers typically, you know, tend to have some element of dissociation that shows up in their symptomatology. There's so many things that, um, Factor into how they now relate; they they have deep attachment wounds, and so there's a lot of things that, from a you know a, a a connection to themselves or other elements or other people or higher powers like that, tends to be disrupted. So it's it becomes very critical for the approach towards healing intergenerational trauma to be very holistic, meaning very mind body spirit, and so that's the, the approach that I take at breaking the cycle, the approach that I help cycle breakers to orient their, their lives around. And that helps them to have a more grounded, more integrated way of healing than just simply focusing on writing down or talking about what happened to them, which is just very mind-based.
2: That makes sense. Cause I guess it's not going to be a quick fix. It's something that has potentially gone on for decades. So it's definitely not going to be a quick fix. Um, I'm now going to use this section of the podcast as an excuse to get some free therapy for myself. (laughs) Um, When we talk about intergenerational trauma, how important is it to actually chat to a parent, a grandparent about what might have gone on? I'm thinking in my own life, my dad had a really, really tough start in life. I don't talk about it. And the main reason is because I don't want to upset him. I don't want him to go back there. I'm very aware it's probably affected all of our lives in some way, but you don't want to cause more harm. So for someone like me, who's got an awareness of it, but just doesn't know how to even approach it, whether you should approach it, what would you say to that?
1: Yeah, that's actually incredibly common. A lot of us cycle breakers do want to help someone else heal as well and to share the wealth of healing. And, you know, the thing about trauma is that, It is really essential to always deposit a tool, a skill in which a person can help themselves to regulate their emotions and feel steady before we actually dig into the wounds. Very often what we want to do when we're talking about intergenerational trauma with people that we love is that we want to say, this is how I've seen you've been hurt. This is how you've hurt me. And we go straight to the wounding. Many times we go straight to pointing fingers. It's Fairly common because people just want answers, right? And so sometimes that that's just our our way. And what that does is that it builds defenses and walls. Why? Because we are naturally self protectors. We want to be able to survive. And if we are, in essence, even even though the person that's telling the story doesn't intend it this way, if we're being attacked and we're being told you hurt me, then our walls are going to go up. And so very often, what I try to orient cycle breakers to when they want to bring in family members into the process with them is to have very gentle conversations that first start off with helping them to obtain the tools that they need to be able to feel more grounded and more steady. And and then if they want to dig deeper into their own story, then allowing them the agency to do so. Because if you, if it's you trying to get them to dig into their story, it's going to elevate their defenses rather than help them uh, to heal. And so it's, it's actually going to make the healing journey a lot harder. So that's kind of like a, a frontline way that I would say like, this is how we can approach it. The other thing that I typically offer folks is you know, it, there's, a, there's power in resources, right? So when we can offer people that we love a book that can be helpful, a link to a podcast, right? You know, a video that explains something, a phenomenon that we want them to understand, like intergenerational trauma, then it offers an opportunity for that education to come from a neutral source rather than from us. And it allows the digestion of that information to not be connected to emotion that is very potent and can build defenses. So that's yet another way to really kind of create a point of entry for people that we love.
2: Mm, it's a lot less intimidating just to ping a link. You might be interested in this, no idea why. <laughs> but I guess then following up after that is, uh, is probably almost definitely the thing to do.
1: Yeah. And maybe even like, you know, posing it, which is probably the the case, right? It's not necessarily that you're lying or manipulating, but posing it as something that was of interest to you. If intergenerational trauma healing and understanding what it is and how to navigate it was explained in a video, and it's something that you're like, wow, that is fascinating. I want to share the the wealth of this knowledge. And you want to you know tell the person that you love listen i i heard this and i found it to be interesting just wanted to share it that's a very in essence quasi neutral way of presenting it that doesn't have that a manipulative angle to it and can offer them an opportunity to then take it in and digest it as they may
2: if you're the person who has had the direct trauma whatever form it has taken do you have any tips for coping in healthy ways with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or or any of the related mental health conditions that can come with that?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, for some of us, coping will also require professional help. So I just want to front load that disclaimer that if that's the case for anyone that it's Essential that people um, get connected to anyone that that is a mental health professional that's trauma trained and trauma responsive. And a lot of the work that happens in trauma happens outside of the therapy room because it's only a 45 minute in relation to the rest of your week. I mean, you have so many (laughs) other minutes in which you have to exist within yourself and help yourself. And a lot of what we understand is a really essential function of trauma healing is getting reconnected to our bodies um being able to engage in a daily practice that can be grounding can help us to feel safer in our bodies is one of the most essential elements of trauma work and trauma healing and what that means on a day-to-day basis is that some of these things that we hear so often being thrown out now in society which you know I, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that we're having broader conversations about these things. For example, like deep breathing, right? We hear about it, but how many of us are truly breathing deeply for a period of five minutes or more on a daily basis, recentering our nervous system with that much intentionality? We hear about it. We know that deep breathing is an option, but how many of us are really taking advantage of that option and multitude of positive effects that it can have upon our bodies that have been in chronic unrest, right? And so it, it, you know, I think it's, it's a matter of like really leaning into the things that are more body-based that are out there that can be helpful. Another uh, practice for individuals who have the mobility to do so is trauma-informed yoga, right? And there are even some free videos that are available uh, to folks in trauma-informed yoga. One of my favorite uh, trauma practitioners. Her name is Dr. Ariel Schwartz. Uh, she just produced, I believe, a book and a flip chart in reference to trauma-informed yoga. It has a number of different free resources on her website that that um, are connected to trauma-informed yoga. Tai Chi is another uh, form of body movement that it, it is also known to really offer like a lot of release of, of uh, retention of tension that's in the body. Even stretching, like doing light stretches, can even be incredibly helpful. And there have been a number of different people that have had very uh, profound healing experiences simply by stretching their bodies in places where uh, trauma has been pent up. So, my biggest resource for myself as a clinician and also as in essence, like a tip for anybody who is hoping to do uh, more profound healing work is to go back into your body, is to ground your body on a continuous basis. And remember that a lot of these techniques are not us just telling you like, do something with your body so that you know, your body can feel better. There is actual scientifically proven evidence. There's, there's positive consequence that happens from a lot of these Techniques that can can really reconfigure the ways that we exist in our bodies, and that goes from you know its impact on the brain and the ways in which it creates new neural pathways inside of our brains and in in, in our nervous system, and how it regulates and helps us to regulate our nervous system, and how it actually like helps us to uh, dissolve um, a lot of what promotes disease. I mean, there is just so much that. Is there that I I hope that people can honor the function of body-based practices and, and really take to it in a way that's very intentional.
2: Has dedicating your career to this topic taught you anything about yourself or your family's story that you maybe hadn't realized?
1: Wow, so much, yeah. You know, I I, I feel like it has helped me specifically hold a lot more compassion for myself. I remember when I was in my early 20s and I remember understanding, perhaps for the first time ever, that something felt different in me, uh, that I felt like a, a very tender person and that it seemed like a lot of the people around me, my peers, weren't so tender. I, I recall like really trying to seek answers and and even self-pathologizing rather than understanding the true... I, the 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 underlying traumatic retention that was happening inside of my mind and body and spirit and the ways in which that was creating how it was showing up to the world i used to be very very i'm i'm still an introvert I, you know I, I kind of i think my temperament just kind of uh calls to introversion i used to be very withdrawn um incredibly shy and there were these uh, ways in which I couldn't socially relate that I think were all tied to the social scripts that I internalized and the the embodiment of the trauma that I internalized that wouldn't allow me to really show up and live a life that was more expansive. And so I I believe that when I found myself into this intergenerational healing work, uh, the the work itself didn't only produce healing inside of my family line which I'm deeply grateful for but it produced so much healing for so many of my patients and so once I was able to really see the brightening of souls of like people like even myself of like expanding I thought this can't be kept in the shadows like this must be shared which is a lot of why you know my book came about because I I realized that why not allow so many more people to have access to these tools and, and, and really exercise the healing in their own life.
2: Your book does have loads more tips around this, but the final question we like to ask all of our podcast guests is what is the one most important lesson that you've learned about mental health that you'd like to pass on to the Mentally Yours listeners?
1: There's so many lessons. I, I can go in into so many places, but I, one that is holding steady for me in my work now is our understanding that the mind and body are interconnected, interwoven, and a part of one whole. And if we can treat it as such, and if we can really attend to the ways in which they feed off each other, then we will have a much better uh, chance at being able to experience profound healing.
0: It's Mentally, 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 Mentally Yours, Mentally Yours, Mentally
2: Yours. Thank you so much, Dr. Marielle, for being our guest this week on Mentally Yours. If you've been affected by anything you've heard today, please call the Samaritans on 116 123. You can find us on our Facebook group, Mentally Yours, and on Twitter at MentallyYRS. And please get involved. Tell us what you've been doing to look after your mental health this week. You can message at Pineapple Audio Production on Instagram with your voice notes. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow and review for more podcast episodes coming your way soon. Mentally Yours is produced by Pineapple
0: Audio Production. Bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?